as I did this and as I spent time with them, I lost my fear of old age. You know, you, that we don't think about that very often, but I think it kind of it colors our lives a little bit. And, very much. And I was reading with fear mostly. You know, <laughs> it, it, if anyone's read Exit West, which I think <clears> is a wonderful novel, it's about refugees. But towards the end of it, he says he defines despair as not being able to imagine a plausible, desirable future for yourself. Mm, That's despair. So if you think about like fear of old age, that's that. Like you can't plausibly desire that future if you're afraid of it. And if that's despair, that's despair we feel not when we're older, but when we're younger. Right. And so it's just like, it's, it's, there's a black thing out there waiting for us. It's, you know, it's an uncomfortable way to think about your life. But if you can give that up and say, old age isn't something to be afraid of it's a period of growth and choice and making decisions and just adjusting to the world as it comes at you you know with the body you have and the resources you have just like being 20 or 50 is then you're not so afraid of it and it just kind of it was as if that film lifted off me and i could start to just be grateful for the things i had and look forward to things and and like make distinctions between what was really important and what was just distraction. Right. Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. John Leland is a reporter at the New York Times and the author of three books. Before joining the Times, he was a senior editor at Newsweek and a reporter at Newsday. He's here today to talk to us about his latest book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. You you started it at the New York Times. Did you have any idea where you were going and then it ended up a book or did you know exactly where you were going and you turned out exactly where you thought you'd be. The book was a little bit of a surprise to me. At the beginning of 2015, I set out to write a year-long series following six people over the age of 85. And why them? Because they're one of the fastest growing age groups in the country. So there used to be, when I was born, there were like fewer than a million people in that group. And now there's almost six million. So it's like, if there were suddenly six times as many teenagers running around, we would want to know something about their lives. And we would want to know it from them. You know, like so much of what we think we know about old age comes from people who have never been old. So I thought I would go to the experts and talk to them about their lives. And it turned out to be something very different from what I thought, because I thought, well, I'll follow these six people. And I found like just regular people, not those like super Stepford elders that you see on the brochures of retirement communities in Arizona who are swing dancing all day. But just regular people and follow them for a year. And I thought I would just like record the hardships of old age and how they played out in their lives. Like they'd fall or they'd start to lose their memory or, you know, worse. And uh, I found all those things. They actually did have all those problems. But as the year went on and I spent more time with them, I realized that, you know, none of them defined themselves by their problems. Only other people did that. If you love taking care of your plants and you got around to them in a wheelchair, you saw yourself as somebody who loved taking care of their plants. Somebody else sees you as a woman in a wheelchair or a man in a wheelchair. And it was so, you know, what I was learning is this different perspective and how uh, those of us who aren't there have a different view of old age than the people that do. 
And so the, the newspaper series set out to write about what old age looked like to the people who were living it. And then years later, when I, you know, as I went back in this afterwards, I wrote more about what I learned and how I was transformed by this experience. And so when I say happiness is a choice you make, uh, I'm really talking about myself, you know, and the rest of us who might not be old yet, we, you know, it's that idea that we need to choose to be happy. We can't really wait for our circumstances to bring it to us because as I learned from the elders, circumstances have a way of not working out the way you planned always. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so you didn't go to it with any preconceptions, and what an inspiring lesson that you drew from it. I would say no, that I did go at it with preconceptions. I went at it with the preconceptions that there was Most nothing else have. to say about old age, but that it's like <laughs> this time of loss and, and misery, and it's about giving up the things that make life special. And. I learned that it was not about that at all. Right, and I think actually you did a very good job of that because I've uh, been enjoying the book very much. Um, I think that you actually painted a really fair, when I say fair, let me say balanced, a balanced picture of what we perceive it to be, which is you do lose certain things and your life does change, but you also were able to, to, to grasp those bits of wisdom, right, that we're expecting from our elders, and that was that you do get to choose to be happy. So I think you did actually a fabulous job of really getting to the root of what these, uh, this generation, what do we call them now? Because we have the boomers. I'm, I think, X, we're all in a different generation. What are we calling our, our they're, they're Well, not. there's still that World War II generation, right? really. Like my, yeah, yeah. my mother's born 1928. <clears throat> She's like the heart of that. She's 89. Right. You know, John Sorensen was 90, well, I guess John was 93 when he died. But, you know, he couldn't get over that he would meet people now that didn't remember the war. Right, so that, right. And Fred Jones told me dirty stories from his time in the service, <laughs> a lot of them. Right, but, uh, right, right. You know, so, like, that's that period of time that was very right. important. The women all, like, they, their time without their husbands were when their t- husbands were serving. Right. And you you managed, you know what, I like that you put in, uh, you added in a love story, a bit of a love story. So you, you added in the possibility that you can also find love again, the possibility that you can accept where you are and then also find joy in simple things and, and peace and time, right? Just having time not to have to work and do everything that, that usually takes up our, our mental capacity when we're younger, you know, striving yeah, right. all the time. The more I think about it, the more I'm impressed with the, There's a couple in the book, Helen and Howie, who met in a nursing right, home. Right. And I thought, okay, you meet in a nursing home, you fall in love, it's a short-term thing. But then I, you know, the more I think about it, I think about the courage it takes to do that, to make yourself vulnerable and open yourself to somebody and care about somebody, knowing that you probably can't do so for very long right. and that one of you is going to watch the other one decline. I find it more brave or courageous than vulnerable, actually. Yeah, no, it's, right. yeah, it's both of those I think, things. Yeah, right. yeah that, that was a lovely story. And, and if I, I mean, if I get to, to get to that stage of my life, who knows, right? Um, I think John Sorensen was the one I wanted because he was still writing and making films, right? That's Jonas Mekas. Oh, so yeah. sorry. Jonas, yeah. John, Jonas, yeah. sorry. I apologize. But I was thinking, I was trying to decide which one would I most relate to in those instances that you painted. 
And I love the idea that we can age and continue to do those things that, that some of the things that we did do, especially when we're creative, right? If we're lucky enough to have a creative venture in our lives. Creativity is such an important part of getting older because it means that, that you are embracing these years as periods that when you're still learning and still growing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't do that. If, if what you do is tennis, your tennis game is going to get worse you know, in your 90s. It's just not going to be the same. And if what you do is earn money, you know, that's not going to be the same. But if what you do is nurture other people, if what you do is nurture your own talent, and you can create positive things, that keeps on going. Uh, You know, tonight I'm going to go to a screening of a movie that's a remake of Annie Hall. It's like a 30-minute remake of Annie Hall that was done with the cast of a senior center. So the guy who plays the Woody Allen character is 94. It's the first time he's ever been in a movie. That's fantastic. He was a, he was a set designer for years, and uh, he'd acted in some plays, but he'd never been in a movie. And the Annie Hall character, she's in her 70s. She's a generation younger, but, but they're really good friends. And you just look at these people and you say, okay, they're growing through this experience. 94 is a growth period for for Harry Miller, who's doing this. And then the filmmakers are in their 20s, and you look at this and say, wow, this is a growth period for them because they're getting to spend all this time with these older people. And they're artists, and they say they look around at their friends, their peers, they're all these, like, alienated artist types. And they look (laughs) at their older friends, you know, Harry and Shula, who are in their 90s and 70s, and they say, those people aren't alienated. They're not, like piling up five of them in an apartment in Bed-Stuy, you know, like, wonder if they'll ever get a good job, wonder if they'll ever find love, you right. know, wonder if they'll ever find their place in the world. And they're looking at their older friends and saying, these guys have it together. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. a great experience. And, you know, I spent a fair bit of time with these people, and we, as we got to talking, we realized, like, my book and their movie are kind of telling the same story, just right. in different idioms. You know, sure. it's really about, like, what we can all learn from... These people who have just lived long enough to know something. Well, John, you started a minute ago, and I want to circle back to the place where you said it was a personal transformation for you. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, some of this can actually just sort of sound like platitudes or, you know, wise sayings. But um, can you tell us what was your lived experience? What was it that transformed well, I was kind of in the bad spirits one day, and I went to see Fred Jones. And Fred was 87 when I met him. He was living alone in a walk-up apartment in Crown Heights, and he was losing two toes to gangrene. And Fred was always in a great mood whenever I saw him. And I, and I said, Fred, you know, what's your favorite part of the day? And Fred would say, waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day, on my way to 110. And I was <laughs> like my gosh, if Fred can do this, you know, what excuse do I have not to? I mean, at first I thought, like, because my mother is 89 and she's unhappy with her life, and but she's got a much more comfortable life than Fred in a lot of ways. And at first I thought, well, why can't she be more like Fred? And then I realized, <laughs> duh, look in the mirror, yeah, why, yeah. why can't I be like Fred? And right. why can't I start to be grateful, you know, the way Fred was grateful for, just for life. And I thought, like, why can't I be grateful for the things in my life? And so I started with simple things, and then I thought, like, that's not it at all. What Fred means by gratitude is being, uh, you know, it was just an attitude toward facing the world. It wasn't like a response to something specific. Right. right. It, was, it was a way of looking right. at the world all the time. And I just started doing that. And I, you know, I had this mood that, that just lifted. And I think that also, 
you know, as I did this and as I spent time with them, I lost my fear of old age. You know, that we don't think about that very often, but I think it kind of it colors our lives a little bit. And, and I was reading with fear mostly. You know, <laughs> it, 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 if anyone's read Exit West, which I think <clears> is a wonderful <throat> novel, it's about refugees. But towards the end of it, he says he defines despair as not being able to imagine a plausible, desirable future for yourself. Mm, that's sure, despair. Sure. So if you think about like fear of old age, that's that. Like you can't plausibly desire that future okay. if you're afraid of it. And if that's despair, that's despair we feel not when we're older, but when we're younger. Right. And so it's just like it's, it's there's a black thing out there waiting for us. It's you know it's an uncomfortable way to think about your life, but if you can give that up and say old age isn't something to be afraid of, it's a period of growth and choice and making decisions and just adjusting to the world as it comes at you, you know, with the body you have and the resources you have, just like being 20 or 50 is. Then you're not so afraid of it, and it just kind of. It was as if that film lifted off me, and I could start to just be grateful for the things I had and look forward to things and, and like make distinctions between what was really important and what was just distraction. Right. So can you give us a concrete example? I mean, without invading your privacy too much. I know you didn't write about yourself, so you, you didn't agree to I got too much of an invasion of your privacy, but I... I I'd love to know how it played out. I mean, you were in a bad mood and then you were in a good mood. Can you fill that in with detail? Uh, you know, I do. We're in a, a political moment, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, that's it's a mess, right? And whether you love the president, you hate the president, things aren't going the way you want them to go. <laughs> you can't look at this and say, gosh, things are kicking it right now. And a lot of my friends are tearing their hair out. They just look at this and, and oh my gosh, we're practically at war with North Korea, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And I, I think about a day I spent with Jonas Mekas, and I was talking about you know things that I was worried about, and Jonas said, I never worry. He said, I'll start to worry when something happens. Why worry when it's not happening? You right, deal right, with it. Right. You waste time worrying. It may never happen what you think. Nothing is hopeless. I don't even know what it means, hopeless. So in the midst of the political fall, I think about this almost every week, and I, if I don't quote it to somebody else, I quote it to myself. That's how I know the words so well. <laughs> but uh, you know, in the midst of all the mess that's going on, really in the early parts of it, I thought, like, you know, took stock of the things that made my life worthwhile. And I thought, they're all going to persevere, no matter what happens in Washington, no matter what happens in Wall Street. The people I care about are still going to be there for me. The people I'd like to spend time with, they're still going to be there for me. I could still live a life with creativity like Jonas and with purpose like Jonas. I could still try to be helpful to other people, like Helen Moses, the woman who has the boyfriend in the nursing home. I could still open my life and allow other people to be helpful to me, you know, give up this idea of that we have to be independent or self-reliant. You know, I could distinguish between things that might happen and things that are happening. And so I've been 
you know, I'm a happier person now than I was two years ago, and I don't think there's too many people you can say that about. That's fantastic. And I, I, I drive my friends crazy with this, I have to say. They're like, you're just way no more fun to be around now. But it's, it's also, it's not a disengagement from the world, because it's a way of getting rid of some of the distractions and the d- depression that prevent us from engaging the world. Absolutely. So I can be more focused and engage with the world more now than, than I could. I just don't need to be miserable about it. Well, I think one of the things you were able to to tap into in this book that I really appreciated, um, I turned 45 just about a week ago, a week and a half ago now, I don't know, it's starting to go quickly, right? Um, and one thing that I really loved about what you uncovered for the reader is, I'm not going to go into it all in detail, but I like the idea that you started to give some concrete idea about how do we approach growing older. So one of the things that I really liked that you touched on was that instead of thinking just of aging, thinking about living, how do, how do we live in those different phases of our lives? And it was really smart of you to approach it from the perspective of, well, if you like being around people, you know, nurture your relationships, right. you know, something like that. Um, so just like you were saying, you know, maybe not worry so much. You know, there, there's no use in worrying. So I think you were able to tap into quite a few. Were there any other unexpected things that you found in speaking to these different people? Well, there's a simple exercise that I think we can do, and I try to do this, you know, fairly regularly, is just think about, like, what's a good life for yourself at 85 or 90? Like, we never do that because we don't put the words good life and 85 or 90 together, but chances are a lot of us are going to get through that age, and so what, what makes a good life then? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean some of the things that we're striving for now. So if these things aren't that important at the end of life, how important are they? What's important? It's, you know, you talk to people in that age group, and what they really care about is that time with the people they care about more than anything. They want to mean something to other people, and they want to let other people mean something to them. So, like, then I think, why wait until you're 80 to start to do that? That's going to be really hard. You know, I... For years, I wrote about retirement, and I would write about people in that early retirement phase. And you would meet all these people who thought, like, well, when I retire, I'm going to do model shipbuilding, or <laughs> or I'm going to volunteer in this. And, and it was just wishful thinking, because those things didn't matter to them, and they weren't going to suddenly matter when they got older. So what does matter? You know, and put our, our care into those things. I would say, among other things, my time with them changed my relationship with my mother because I grew to appreciate her much more and thought about less about trying to fix the problems that she had for her and more about you know just spending time and letting her do things for me. How did she feel about being included in the book? She was a little wary about it because we are from that you know sort of old school stock where you don't air your lives in, in public and. One of the things I talked to her about was why she had never dated after my father died, because I wanted to know this. I was curious as what, what, you know, what was it that people uh, give that up for? And so we had had a conversation. There had been somebody who moved into her building. She lives in a, a senior building downtown. And there had been somebody who moved into her building that she was became friends with, a little sort of special friend. And I told her I was, you know, I had a conversation about this and told her I was interested in writing about that. And she became very uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So I showed, sure. you know, I had to show her that. 
but otherwise she was kind of happy for this and she's got a lot of attention for it so and she didn't tell you wait 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 now we're now we're all waiting for this so, and we don't have to know but i know she said I, I wasn't she kept saying i wasn't in love with him i wasn't in love with him it wasn't a big deal it was just somebody <laughs> who wanted to be a friend uh, he was an economist. I had studied e- economics in college, and so uh-huh. I was interested in him. Right. He seemed like a different kind of person. Well, sometimes I think our commitments, I mean, have changed over, over the decades, right? I, the way we view commitments, especially matrimonial ones, I would assume that it's very difficult for someone of a different time to even admit that, you know, you can have an interest in someone right. outside of the person you married, right? Yeah, also, you know, she didn't want to, well... <clears throat> My father's death was really hard on her, and and he, it was he died somewhat painfully, and we probably kept him alive a day or two longer than we should have. And she said she never wanted to go through that again with somebody. So she, I think that you hear that answer a lot when you're talking to women about remarrying after what we call a gray divorce. Mm-hmm. There is a feeling of not wanting to have to take care of somebody as they decline. And I think that's not just unique, because um, I've heard that a number of times. No, I know. It's, it's In fact, there were others like that. It was very interesting. There was another woman, Ruth Willig, who had also lost her husband after a, a long marriage, and she had nursed him as well. And her, she also didn't want to date, but I think it was because she was really living in the memory of that marriage she had, and it probably became a more perfect marriage the more in years, years went, <laughs> right. went, went by, but nothing could match that. So, you know, why why date again? Why go through all the trouble again? I I go back to that word, making yourself vulnerable. Right. You know. Right. Do you want to take off your clothes with a, a new person now? Right. You know, like, right. That's a that's a scary, scary thing again. for a lot sure, of people, sure. especially if you're. 80 or 90. But extrapolating from the principle that you derived, which is to be more creative and that that's what's going to give you joy, it would seem like you might want to encourage people to keep on having um, exposure and vulnerability. I think people should, but I just think it. uh, some people just don't want that. It's another rite of passage, if you think about it, that we just don't talk about, right? To be able to do it yet again once again at a different phase of our lives. It's an interesting concept. I think that what we don't want to do is tell people, oh, your life is incomplete because you're not doing that. Absolutely, yeah. It's but nice to say nothing is off the table, right? If, if you if you feel it, if you're young, and if your mindset allows for it, then, then go for it, and if not, then respect it, right? Yeah. There's a lot <clears throat> of uh, this sort of youth-obsessed culture where the idea, as you mentioned, is uh, to grow old with uh, swing dancing all day long and to look young um, and that makes age better um, and it's sort of unnerving to define a good age as you know uh, a good way of aging as you know not actually getting older it seems like it's impossible nobody's going to live up to that standard it's like <coughs> you're signing up for failure from the beginning and um so I wondered if you could talk about that as an aspect of making yourself happier in old age. There's a sort of a cultural bias you have to fight through to say, well, I'm going to let my hair go gray, I'm going to be proud of my age, I'm going to show my wrinkles, I'm not going to fight. Um, is that something that you encountered with these six? Yes, but I think they mostly gave that they gave up a lot of those vanities. But they still hung, you know, hung up onto some of them. But I would say, you know, 
old age is the only time we uh, impose that standard. No one says of a 21-year-old, oh my gosh, it's great. She's just like a 13-year-old. <laughs> you know, no one says that. Or right, or, right. or 40-year-old says, oh, she's just like a 21-year-old. Because we like the 40-year-old better than the 20-year-old. There's been growth. We say, oh my gosh, I remember when she was 21. What a piece of work she was. And now she's really gotten it together and she's almost ready to have her own apartment and, right. you know, right. wh- whatever. But, but <clears throat> we expect that life is is about change and growth. And, and then when people get to be a certain age, you, you, you measure their quality of life by how much they're still like the way they used to be. But we never do that with, with people of any other age. And it's... I think it's just a product of ageism. We're just uh, not able to accept the, the people that do that. And you think about it, who are the voices that we hear in the culture? Like, we don't listen to the people that are very young. We dismiss their their views because they're too young. We don't listen to the people that are very old because... The millennials might argue with you. <laughs> they're just old. But the millennials might might actually argue with you no, on no, that no. point. They're, I mean, they're making quite a, quite a fuss these days, right? Yeah, but I think that the culture <clears throat> doesn't listen to them and often dismisses their views as... as as being unformed. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel that there's <clears throat> ageism that attacks both those sides. And so who gets to define what old age is? It's people that are not there yet. Well, let's talk about pleasure and Seneca, because he's in here. <laughs> you you mm-hmm. have this line here about, Seneca argued that we should cherish and love old age for it is full of pleasure if one knows how to use it. Mm. I want to I wanna talk about that pleasure specifically because well we can unpack it and talk about it and in the context of creativity uh love affairs or lack of love affairs and maybe just having friendships or how would you yeah i don't think people associate pleasure and creativity with old age i think they uh it's difficult to combat ageism i don't know that um there's been a breakthrough in the culture i think it's it's really hard because it's unacceptable to believe that white is inherently superior to black. That's racism. It's unacceptable to believe that. It's unacceptable to believe that male is inherently better than female. And we have terms we call those racism and, and, and sexism. It is acceptable to believe that being young is better than being old. It's still acceptable in society today. So that makes ageism really, really hard to root out. And I and I think that that you know, if we if we call it youth supremacy, it starts to, you know, <laughs> then we can see that. That could be your next book. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a kind of bigotry like like the <clears> others, <throat> and it's again, the people that think white is inherently better than black tend not to tend to be one and not the other, right? But everybody's yeah. going to get old. But everybody's right. So that could really there. unite us as a platform if you wanted to. But they're based on ignorance because they're based on not knowing what black is or not knowing what female is. And ageism is based on not knowing what well, old age is. What about, what about, let's talk about the fear of aging again because um, w- maybe the fears are also not just about aging but about disease, right? About and, and you mentioned in the book about how much more likely it is for men versus women to have... Um, first off, our lifespan obviously is is predicted, and then to be whatever it is within any number of years. I think an 85 year old male is expected to live another seven years. I yeah, think, right? something like that. Yeah. Um, but then I think disease is is really what what we see as as the 
natural course and consequence of aging. And I think that may be what scares people more than anything, right? It does. But again, this is usually coming from people who haven't had these diseases. So we overstate them. We say, gosh, if I ever lost my eyesight to the extent that I couldn't read, life wouldn't be worth living. Or if I ever couldn't walk around under my own power, life wouldn't be worth living. And then you look around and you say, like, well, a large part of the planet can't see well enough to read, or a large part of the planet can't uh, get around well enough to walk on their own. And do we think that those lives are meaningless? And you say, no, they don't. And you talk to people who are in the wheelchair, and they'll, that's, again, that's not how they define themselves. That, that was my experience. And there was an interesting study by the uh, British Mental Health Foundation with people with dementia, because I think dementia is the thing that scares so many of us. I know it scares me. And they talk to people about their quality of life, to rate their quality of life. And then they ask their healthcare proxies, who were probably most likely their kids or their spouses, about dad's quality of life. And so the people with dementia tended to rate their quality of life as reasonably okay. You know, some a little bit lower than average, some a little higher than average, maybe on, on the whole a little bit lower than average. But their healthcare proxies, their kids, thought it was their, they had no quality of life or that it was very low. And they did the tests over time, so they asked these questions again as people's health declined, as the disease advanced. And the people with dementia kept roughly the same view of their quality of life, whereas their kids thought it was just getting worse. Interesting. So it's just a reminder that, you know, how we look at disease or disability or you know decline in whatever faculties might look very different once we're there. Exactly. It's sort of a sliding, it's a moving target. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't stay in the space that you think it is when you're 21 and it doesn't stay in the space when you are 41. I, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to the people about what would be too much decline, you know, what would be too hard for you to take. And they would tell me things and then over the course of the year I spent with them, and now it's been three and a half years for the ones that are still living, they would get closer to those yardsticks, and then they would just move them further ahead. Oh. So, well, you know, old is when you have to walk with the cane, and then you have to walk with the cane, and they go, no, old is really when you're in a wheelchair, right. and then you're in a wheelchair. It's right. like, old is when you don't want to get out of bed anymore. You right, know, right. They, they, you keep adjusting. You see this life, and it's okay, it's not what you thought it was, and it's not something that you, would, you wouldn't you would choose to lose your eyesight or lose your mobility. But you get there and you say, well, okay, I'm still making choices about what's important to me and still, as I say, you know, adjusting to the world as it comes at me with the body I have. Well, thank you for giving us another perspective on aging. Um, we certainly needed that. I, I, I think about it, I mean, I think as we get to midlife, we think about it perhaps more so than when we're in our 20s, right? So. And what's the alternative, right? <clears throat> Could be That's staying true. young forever. Right. Good luck with that. We might have some robot <laughs> parts yeah. coming in. Maybe we'll be part of an assembly line. Yeah. Who the heck knows, right? Um, but I wanted to move into your other books while we have you with us today. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about oh, which hi- one should we do? The history and then the book about Jack Kerouac, the lessons that we didn't think we were going to mm. learn from Jack Kerouac. Which one should we tackle first? Um, hip. Sure. Hip, the history. What, I, what can I tell you? Let's, I, I, I want to know how hip you are. How <laughs> hip are you, John? <laughs> I think obviously you, you thought writing about counterculture <clears throat> was... Um, interesting for a while because those that sort of seems to unite those two books mm-hmm. 
and you've come a very different way since then. Um, is there any through line between writing about the counterculture and where you ended up now, or did you just decide to break away into a whole different field? You know what's so funny about the, the two sets of books is that the, the Kerouac book and the Hip book are all about these people that we admire and seem to be having kicks, 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 and great time. And so many of the people in that book led miserable lives. You know, Kerouac <laughs> led a miserable life. That's you know, true. the Jackson Pollocks of the world, the Charlie Parkers of the world. Uh, you know, they led kind of miserable lives. The old age book is about people that we think are living miserable lives, and they're kind of doing okay. That's so true. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, maybe, the, <clears throat> maybe we could get John to read something from Happiness is a Choice You Make. Okay, let's do that. I would say that on the whole, people are more uncomfortable <clears throat> at, with the idea that Wisdom is in kind of miserable experiences rather than happy ones. We are uncomfortable with the idea of happiness in general. We think it's kind of dopey. Well, before we move on to reading, which which of the three books do you feel most changed your perspective? Would it be the latest book or? The, the first two books are really uh, kind of analytical books and I went in with the ideas that I had and I formed them and I, I learned a lot uh, in the course of making them, but they were, it was intellectual. And this was really much more emotional and getting into people's lives. And it's much closer to me, much closer personally. So the other books were not these transforming experiences for me. This kind of just changes the way I get up in the morning every day. And I still, you know, like in the course, when I was writing the book, or just even before I wrote the book, I wrote the words, happiness is a choice you make on a piece of paper and taped them up by my bed. So I would see them every day, and I still have them there, <laughs> just as a reminder to myself. You know, it, it's up to me to choose how I want to see the things in my life, and if I can do that, you know, I can get through this day. Or even more, then get through it. Actually, enjoy yeah. it every minute of it. Yeah, yeah. If you have the right perspective. Yeah, and I like to be. I think also staying present in the moment, and I think part of what you're saying with that is, it's its choice is being is choosing to be happy with what you have in the moment, right? Because I think being part of the present and being very, very present is a big part of how happy we are, right? Because right? so often when we're not happy, we're either looking back or looking too far forward, right? I think it's a focus on what is, not what isn't. The things, you know, if you... I spent all my years, you know, being driven by this kind of anger and dissatisfaction and, you know, those things are really productive things as a journalist. We go out and try to, we look at problems. But I realized that was a negative way of looking at the world because I was looking at what wasn't. You know, the things that were missing or deficient rather than the things that were, things that actually existed. You know, you're just looking at the water glass and seeing what wasn't there rather than the water that is. And, you know, I mentioned Fred Jones earlier and I was, you know, Fred had asked me what I thought happiness was. And I told him what I thought it was and Fred said, that's not happiness. He said, <laughs> happiness to me is what's happening now. Right. You know, it's not the next world. It's not the dance you're going to tonight. Right. If you're not happy at the present moment, you're not happy. And right. I thought that's looking at what is. Right. You know, not the dance that isn't or the, the right. next world that aren't, at least not yet. What is? And well, if you could live in what is. Right. You, know, you can be happy. But some people might argue with you and say, well, what about the fact that we're human and therefore we have this myriad of emotional context within us? And should we not then be able to still be happy and yet express every single uh, emotional reaction that we're going to have? Like you lose your job, 
you're not going to be happy in that moment, right? Or your spouse, you know, leaves. You're not going to be happy in that moment. So what's the, what's the the antidote to those those moments of adversity, right? In, in moments of tragedy, you're not supposed to look up and say, my gosh, what a beautiful day at least. This could have been terrible. No, you're supposed to experience sadness. You're supposed to experience loss. You know, in the same way we experience the color green or the sensation of sadness. They're just part of what's what being human. But I think what I found from the people in the book is they understood loss as something that's a part of life and something that we share with every other person who's ever lived on the planet, not something that we're singled out for individually. Mm-hmm. So you understand those losses. You should feel them. You should feel those that misery occasionally. But don't think that it makes you special or different from the rest of humanity. Mm-hmm. It makes you alike with them and, and it's something that we're bonded with others over so we don't need to feel alone in our miseries and i think that tempers them and helps us put them in perspective happiness and sadness i don't think are negating you you should feel sadness sometimes mm-hmm. but that shouldn't stop <clears throat> you from being happy so uh i think at least one of these and possibly more since i checked uh people has died yeah that's right um what was that like Two of them died. Fred Jones died in April of 2016. He had a heart attack. Fred, you know, Fred always wanted me to fix him up with one of those real fine <laughs> chicks I know, and I never <laughs> got to do it. And John Sorensen died two months later. And John had said every time we got together that he wanted to die. Huh. So he, but he was so interesting because he wouldn't, you know, John loved to talk, so he would always be in a good mood when he was talking, even when he was talking about wanting to die. And it was confusing to me. So I would say, you know, like, like, I'd say, you know, John, do you really wish you were dead now? And he would say, no, because we're having this conversation. Say, okay, you know. That's big in the moment. I, I'm going to leave in a little while. And so, do you want to die then? He says, well, no, because Anne is coming on Tuesday. And there's the Met Opera broadcast on Saturday. So it wasn't that he wanted to be dead. He just didn't want to live for a long time. And I realized that just... This wanting to die and accepting his death meant that, like, every time he listened to a piece of music, he listened to it as if it might be the last time. Right. And every time he had a conversation, he treated it like it might be the last time he ever saw that person. So he zeroed in. He wasn't, like, looking at his phone or, right. you know, thinking about what's on TV that night. So it actually meant that he enjoyed his pleasures more than, you know, instead of it being more morbidity that... that uh, you know, takes the pleasure out of life, it actually made him enjoy his pleasures more than He had more intense pleasure than most people because he was so, so present. I like that. Like, I like the opera, but John's Wagner was better than my Wagner (laughs) because he just listened harder because he thought it might be his last time. And so that was something I could learn from him. But John died in in, uh, in, uh, June of 2016. Mm -hmm. And I was with him on one of his last days, and a physical therapist comes by and says... He'll be back again the next day, and John is really weak, and he says, I look forward to it already. <laughs> and I thought, wow, at that point in your life, he's in so much pain. But what what John is living is this sense of human connection and gratitude. That's what were important to him in that moment, and that's what he was living in. Mm-hmm. It was an, a, you know, an unhappy situation you wouldn't want, wish on any of us, but that attitude was just remarkable. Yeah, the- do you feel like this message is getting out? I mean, we have this burgeoning population in the older years. I don't know whether it's 60, 70, 80, 90 or exactly. 
how that breakdown happens. But do you feel like this message, um, this sort of spiritual growth through aging process or this um, uh, perspective on life being more important than the stereotypes that we expect old age to be? Do you think, do you feel like this message is spreading? Do you feel like the fact that we have such a lot more people in that demographic has caused a greater awareness of this lesson? I think. I think we've shut those people off a lot so that we don't hear their voices as much as we should. But I do think, again and again, it's the experiences of the baby boomers that transform the culture. And I think they're a transformative, you know, they're in another transformative moment where they're dealing with that moment where they're seeing both, and I'm a baby boomer myself, but we're seeing both the aging or deaths of our parents and those first hints of our own old age or mortality. We're seeing both of those at the same time. So I think there's, I don't know how far along we are in this process, but there is there is a rethinking to be done in this next 10 years, I think. Is there another book in you about this particular topic? Because I think you've, you've talked about decisions and perspective, but what about mindset, which we talk about all the time in for 20s and 30s and 40s? I have an idea, and I don't know whether it'll, I'll really bring it to fruition, but about accepting death and that where how we can accept death and, and really accept our mortality to change our lives now and i think that so many of us either don't think about death or have like to the extent that we think about it and accept it we have this apocalyptic mindset where we're like we'll die and then the world will end but if you think about <laughs> yourself as just being this blip on this long continuity you know it can change the way you think about your obligations to the world and what you're getting from life. So I think there's, I'm curious about that. I don't know that, I haven't figured out a book in that, but it's an interesting, I think it's a, a part of my life, my next chapter of my life's explorations, mm-hmm. whether it's a book or not, I don't know. Well, let us know, because Diane is actually putting together a terrific uh, workshop called The Legacy Project. Oh, and oh. it's, it's. Um, I'm a huge supporter of it because I think what she's going to do is going to give, as you said earlier, give a voice to that, to those. And not just, I don't think it's just to people who are much older. I think people even in my age group are starting to think, what is our legacy? So um, it's good to know that you're considering it. I think we can continue to use more guidance and, and ideas and feedback on, well, how do we do it, right? Because you're beginning to touch on it here by telling us what the decision is, and I think that's really powerful. But there's so much more we can do. It is important that you look at death a little more realistically than, as you said, to think that it's you know just going to be the end of the world one day. I mean, usually it's not you um, get a little older and you die. Usually it's you get a little older and a little sicker and a little more miserable and a little more miserable and then you die, right? And people need to sort of face um, death. I mean, have you been to a death cafe? Yes. There you go. Yeah, that's I why I asked about it. Where's that? Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah, tell us about it. Tell and that's why I asked about these things seeping into the culture, because I think that I see them seeping into the culture, these discussions about mortality. I did a story in the Times a couple weeks ago about the positive death movement and various aspects of it, and death cafes were one of it, where people just get together and they, it's an unscripted, unled conversation about death. And you drink a little tea and eat some sweets. And, yeah. and talk whatever's on your mind. And the conversations can get trivial or they can get fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, the journalist Ellen Goodman 
has this something called the uh, the conversation project. Huh. It's about it's more practical nuts and bolts than the death cafes. It's get together and talk about what you want the end of your life to be. Mm-hmm. You know, put down your goals. Uh, if this happens, do you want this? You know, you want this to be done. If this happens, you want this to be done. Well, you know, do you need should you get antibiotics? Should you get a feeding tube? You know, should you right. should we take these steps? And so, sort of get nuts and boltsy about it. And we don't have that conversation because we're, you know, it's a little squishy about death. Exactly. My my uh, on that note, my ex, my soon to be ex husband's brother wrote a book called The Conversation, and it's uh-huh. all about how to handle end of life care and all the conversations you should be having. Right. So it's interesting that yes, I'm happy to see that in some way, shape, or form, we are trying to approach the topic and think of ways to deal yeah, with it. Yeah, he's a doctor. Yes, he's and a doctor. I'm an attorney, and so um, it comes up a lot uh, in getting your legal act together. You want to make sure that you have your health care proxy done, and I'm sure you've covered this territory. Mm-hmm. I have, and I have a health care proxy now, I'm happy to say. Fantastic. I didn't when Terry Gross asked me if I had a, <laughs> DNR. a DNR. Yeah. <laughs> that took you a moment, right? You're like, oh, okay, what should I say about that? Well, let's move on then to our, uh, we call it the On the Hook segment. What do you think of it, John? What, should we call it something else? We're we call it the On the Hook segment where we invite our, our show guests to, to read aloud from their work. But we yeah. call it the you're show right. guest reads aloud from work segment. <laughs> you're right. You're a journalist guest, though. I was figuring we'll ask you. Our, our podcast is uh, is still fairly new, and we're open to to uh, changing things up here and there. Call it the written word. The written word. Yeah. I like I the written word. The written word. Um, let's um, get a minute to organize and get the book out but first I want to ask you if there's anything that you want to wrap up and say in this conversation that we haven't asked you about oh no this has been great this has been really wonderful and where can people find the book let's tell them the book is everywhere my website is happinessisachoiceyoumake.com and we'll have a lot of characters but we can do it we'll have it in the show notes all right and then uh, we'll just get you to read the end of uh, this the end of the introduction the end of the introduction The elders all knew something you can't get on the internet, which is how to be old, and how the world looks from the perspective of someone who has lived in it for a while and who will soon be leaving it. As Helen Moses often tells her daughter, I was your age, but you were never my age. They are not, as they are often described these days, an age tsunami, something gathering out at sea that will soon wreak devastation on our shores. They're us, if not now, then someday, and if we're not willing to learn from them, We'll miss important lessons about what it means to be human. Old age is the last thing we'll ever do, and it might teach us about how to live now. I didn't know any of this when I started dropping in on the lives of the six elders. Mainly, I hope to show the pains and hardships of old age. Journalism loves problems. What else, I reasoned, was old age made of? All I knew was that my life had been turned upside down, and the things I thought were solid had proved temporary. At least I wasn't old, I thought. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? 
send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.